Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are watching or listening to Multipolarista, the podcast. And I'm joined by a friend of the show, a great journalist who I met in Nicaragua and who does great reporting from the US on a lot of issues, but especially he has a lot of attention on US immigration policy. His name is Abraham Marquez, and he's a great independent journalist. He's written two articles recently over at multipolarista.com focused on the Biden administration's immigration policy. So I'll get up both of these articles and I'll link to them below in the show description. He just published an article on April 21st, which is very important. It's called Biden is expanding the U.S. government's brutal anti-immigrant machine. And he talks about how the Joe Biden administration has continued many of the same anti-immigrant policies of the Trump administration, and specifically how Biden has actually expanded immigrations, immigration and customs enforcement, ICE. And here you can see a graph, actually, of Biden's budget proposal, which is increasing ICE by actually $312 million higher than the Donald Trump era average. So this is, I think, an extremely important issue that does not get much coverage in the media, even in a lot of kind of progressive alternative media, there's not much coverage of this. And then uh, he also published a really good article recently focused on the Biden administration's extreme hypocrisy in terms of immigration policy. It's called Weaponization of Immigration Policy. Ukrainians welcomed refugees of U.S. wars abused. Today we're going to talk about these two articles. We're going to talk about how the Biden administration has continued the Trump administration's brutal anti-immigrant policies, and how you know white Ukrainian refugees are welcomed after fleeing a war that the U.S. and NATO helped start. But people who are fleeing U.S. wars in Western Asia, in Northern Africa, and in Latin America, who are fleeing because of U.S. coups and neoliberal policies, of course are brutalized and abused. So Abraham, th thanks for joining us here at Multipolarist. So let, let's just start. Can you kind of reflect on the, the coverage you've been doing as a journalist focused on U.S. government immigration policy? <clears throat> yeah, well, Ben, thanks for having me on and inviting me. Uh, I wanted to shed some light on this uh, because, uh, well, for obviously for, for, for many reasons, but just the hypocrisy of the Biden administration, the Democrats, um, how they treat uh, you know, asylum seekers. Uh, I actually spent some time in the border in Tijuana and spent some time with some Haitians, Central Americans, um, and the conditions that they're living in the streets. Uh, it's it's really um, heart-wrenching, uh, to say the least. And seeing that Ukrainians are getting kind of like this <clears throat> fast pass of getting into the country, getting the paperwork process. Um, I'm not saying all Ukrainians are, are, are getting that kind of treatment, but the majority of them are. Um, and it's really, you know, hypocritical of, of, the, of the administration. Uh, it shows and exposes the system as being a racist system. Um, and so I wanted to shed some light on that. And can, can you talk about, let, let's start with your most recent piece, which looks at how the Biden administration has continued expanding ICE. So for people who don't know, I mean, I, I'm guessing a lot of people who watch or listen to the show probably are vaguely familiar with ICE, you know, th this agency is infamous for brutalizing immigrants with with horrific tactics like for instance there was this horrific story of a of an immigrant who was in the hospital getting uh, surgery to remove a brain tumor 
and ICE went into the hospital and removed them. I mean, like just like these brutally uh, barbaric policies. So let's talk about what ICE is and how it's continued to expand under Biden. Yeah, so ICE was created in 2003. It was after the 9-11 attacks. And um, so the, the southern border, it, Bill Clinton was the first president to approve the, the to build a, a wall along the Mexico and U.S. border. Um, and it was like a 10 foot wall, it's a 10 foot fence. Um, and it's which still it's still there now. Um, and then when Bush W. Bush uh, got into office, uh, he went even further, militarized it and built a fence right next to it that it was even taller, has all these cameras on there, um, you know, with his extra funding into uh, the border. The border there's more agents, there's uh, surveillance, uh, and there's people that live there too. There's people that live by the border. So they're constantly being surveilled, they're constantly being watched uh, from the foreign government. Um, <clears throat> and then after Bush, uh, under Obama, Obama, you know, it, he, I think everyone by now knows that he deported more people than anyone. Uh, I think it was around 2.5 million people. And along Tijuana's uh, riverbed, it's dry now, but I mean, there was large encampments of of, uh, of people that were deported. Um, I went out there a few times, uh, even as of um, well, like six years ago as well, uh, and speak to people that were deported. And a lot of them were just regular workers who were getting you know, harassed by ICE agents. Uh, we're getting raided at their facilities um, if they're working at a construction site or if they're working at a house or something. Um, you know, there'll be uh, right wingers that would call the call ICE agents on them. Um, and so the Obama administration left an imprint along the Mexico border as well um, by leaving all these people that were deported. That a lot of them were not even from Mexico. Uh, and then you see the same thing after after uh, after Obama. Uh, Trump went even further as well and started building another wall. Um, I went out there during his administration and along the um, the eastern, the Mexicali border, he had about eight different samples of different kind of walls that he wanted to uh, wanted to use. Uh, and they were all testing them. Um, and I went out there and you can see, you know, the, the, the agents were like throwing rocks at it to see if they can, if they can uh, uh, strong enough to, to, to the rocks don't penetrate through. Uh, they're trying to climb them, um, just really bizarre things. Um, and now under Biden, you know, it's it's he's going to further even further militarize it with this uh, ex extreme uh, budget. Uh, but I think the the one thing that I also wanted to, to highlight was uh, Biden has a record of being anti-immigrant. He has a record of being racist. He has a record. He has a policy. He has a he's a career politician, um, and so. It's really bizarre for me to to see that no one's talking about this. Um, no one's, like you mentioned, not even like some left-leaning progressive outlets. No one's talking about his uh, his anti-immigrant immigrant policies. Uh, no one's talking about his uh, his poor ratings are really low, um, and it's just kind of going under you know under the under the rug. And and everyone's paying attention to these Ukraine refugees. Um, people have to remind remind themselves that you know there's other refugees too that are escaping. U.S. foreign policies and U.S. wars and imperialist wars that, you know, they should they should also be treated the same. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. I think it's so important because the narrative in the U.S. is so frequently that, you know, the, the U.S. is such a great country and and people just want to flock to the U.S. because of the American dream. Right. This is patronizing racist idea. I mean, meanwhile, 
there are hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who are homeless and that number mm -hmm. is increasing every year. There are, you know, horrible cases of police brutality and, and systemic racism and all of this. But let's talk about the the important distinction between, you know, the idea of voluntary immigration and being a refugee, because the reality is that according to international law, most of the people coming across the southern border into the United States could be considered refugees or asylum seekers. You stress this point in your article weaponization of immigration policy, Ukrainians welcomed refugees of U.S. wars abused. And you, you pointed out that from March 2020 to February 2022, so the last two years, really, including the first year of the Biden administration, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, reported that there were more than 1.7 million expulsions of asylum seekers, including 21,000 children. So, I mean... This is incredible. We're talking about illegal expulsions of asylum seekers, which is against international law. I mean, these people have the right to apply for asylum. And you also point out that there's been these reports of thousands of attacks, documented attacks. We have evidence showing that some of these asylum seekers who were, who were deported by the U.S. have been tortured, kidnapped, raped, even killed. So uh, just talk about I mean, there's so many incredible statistics and facts in, in your reports here that we could go into. But I mean, this is completely illegal, according to international law. And the U.S. just treats all of these asylum seekers like they're, you know, just ungrateful people just like begging for a handout or something. It's so racist. Yeah, the um, the Ukraine situation has really expose the the liberal talking point of immigration you know the liberal talking point of immigration is like we we'll just do it the right way you know apply and wait in line and and all that and, it, and it's and it's it that's kind of been exposed as like that's you can wait and you can apply but it's you're not going to be getting in as as quick or or you know a lot of people who are escaping violence you know they need to they need safety right away um so you can't tell them to go back home when they're going to get attacked or something's going to happen to them. And that's what we're seeing. You know, people are being denied and people are being rejected right away. And <clears throat> as they go back, you know, like the report says, people are being tortured. Um, a lot of them are being taken in through the cartels. Uh, you know, just a lot of violent, violent, violent treatment. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, like I said, it's the, the hypocrisy that's being exposed now with the Ukraine situation. Yeah, and I want to highlight uh, a, a little-known fact that is really wild in your most recent report, which is the backlog of immigration cases in, in U.S. immigration courts. This is a graph showing from 1998 until now just this skyrocketing number in the immigration courts. I mean, we're talking about like 1.7 million cases. So And... And by the way, I want to keep in mind while we're discussing this that you can look at these two graphs and it's just it's mind blowing because you can see that in the past, you know, six or seven years, the number of cases in immigration courts has skyrocketed. And meanwhile, if you look at this other graph, which is something you pointed out from this is official U.S. Census Bureau mm -hmm. statistics since 2016, there has been a very substantial decline in net immigration to the United States. 
And especially since COVID in 2020, it declined by 50%. But I mean, it, it's incredible looking at these two graphs because meanwhile, while net immigration to the U.S. has been steadily decreasing, the backlog in immigration courts has been skyrocketing. Talk about you know, what, what your experience has been in reporting on immigration courts and what those experiences are like you know, with a lot of people who don't even speak English and most people who don't have attorneys. Yeah, there's actually, um, in 2019, <clears throat> before the pandemic, I was doing ICE visits. So I was actually going into uh, the prison uh, here in Alavanto in the high desert of California. It's about a two hour Northeast drive from here. Uh, and I would talk to uh, people who are detained by ICE um, that are waiting for, for either some uh, court date or whatnot. Um, and there's a lot of people who are in there um, who are un obviously undocumented and don't know anything about their court uh, date or where they're at with their paperwork. And the reason that is, is because their family that's, you know, outside, whether in LA or an IE or anywhere, um, <clears throat> they're also undocumented and they're scared. They're terrified of going into, you know, an immigration a facility to ask about their son, their daughter, their husband, their wife, um, because they're also undocumented and they don't want to be anywhere near that. Um, and I've actually worked on two cases where that was the case, where they had no one in their family was wanting to look into it because they were afraid. Um, and me and some other people helped them out with a public defender. And two years later, they were able to get out. And that is like the reality for a lot of people is that they're, they're undocumented and they're afraid and they also don't want to be detained. Um, so there's that case too. And now with COVID, that kind of like added more, I don't know what, what the word is, but it added more to it because now you have all these government workers who are not, you know, working from home or they got laid off or their hours got cut because of COVID. So there was an extra, extra backlog to it um, that's putting, letting people inside a, a detention center that is, you know, and I put on their report, you know, ICE is known for their horrendous treatment of, of people inside. Um, there's a case of Jose Tapete, a guy that I worked with, who he was uh, uh, Jose, Jose Tapete. That's his last name, Jose Tapete. People Google him. He was uh, one of the first people to blow the whistle uh, inside the Alavanto Detention Center who was being mistreated. Um, they were using, um, I forgot the name of this chemical to spray on, on the, the detainees. Um, they have no space for for um, for social distancing. A lot of them caught COVID. Um, the food that they get in there, it's, it's soy-based. It's not really high on protein. So if you're diabetic or if you're if you have some kind of um, health issue, uh, the food's not going to help you. It's only going to make your, your living situation worse. Um, and so he spoke out on it. He was the first person to to call out Alavanto for for the mistreatment. And twice, twice. They had him, um, they were getting ready to deport him and put him in the bus. But because of public pressure, people that in, people inside that, that supported him um, protested. And then there were people that came out of, uh, in, in the facility. And because of that pressure, they didn't deport him twice. Um, and now that he's out, he's spoken that he, he's, you know, being interviewed and speaking out on the, the conditions that people go through inside. Um, so this, these, are, these are the stories that, like, I, I, want, I want those to get out. I want people to hear. And to learn about the treatment that people get when they're, they're when they're detained by ICE, uh, it's not a humane system. It's not a humane place, uh, and it's something that should be abolished. 
Definitely. And some a point that you stressed at the beginning of this interview, I think is crucial to keep in mind. The idea that ICE has always existed is this kind of figment of the imagination of, you know, this paranoid anti-immigrant hysteria in the United States. But ICE is a product of the war on terror. It was created by the George Bush administration after 9-11 as part of this larger apparatus with the Patriot Act and mass surveillance mm -hmm. and all of that. But I mean, getting back to to I mean, actually related to this, I want to talk about the narrative of so-called terrorism and and immigration. But I just wanted to stress what we were talking about immigration courts, a, a, a fact that you stress, which is really shocking and it needs to be talked about more, is that according to this data that's filed by the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse, which is a lot of great data, TRAC, they found that 30% of children, or sorry, 30% of asylum seekers in the United States are children. And four-fifths of them, of these minors, have no attorney. So we have children, many of which speak Spanish and don't speak English, who are in these, who are waiting in these backlogged immigration courts and are expected to represent themselves as children in English and they don't speak English. I mean, it's just like, it's truly dystopian. I mean, this is like, you know, you go back to read the trial by Kafka. This is really Kafka-esque. But I mentioned, you know, the the history of ICE and the war on terror. And an article, it, it, a point that you made in your article, your most recent article about Biden continuing to expand ICE, is this narrative spread by both ICE and CBP that they're protecting the U.S. from so-called terrorism. And of course, we've seen right-wing media outlets constantly stress this. This is an article that was just published this April in Fox News. 42 migrants on terror watch list arrested attempting to enter U.S. illegally under Biden. <laughs> and of course, where does this come from? It comes from CBP. So we're expected to take what CBP claims at face value as if it's some impartial source. And I mean, there's a ton of stories like this. A day before Fox News published a very similar story claiming that Border Patrol stopped 23 people on the terrorist database in 2021. Again, this is coming directly from the mouth of CBP, so definitely not an impartial source. And we've seen the same, you know, uh, hysterical propaganda in other outlets like the Daily Mail. I mean, just the same idea that these immigrants and refugees are terrorists. But if you actually look at real government statistics and statistics by monitoring groups, you see that the vast majority, 70 to 80% of people held by ICE have no criminal record. And those who do have a criminal record, they're usually very minor offenses like traffic violations. And according to US court records, only 0.6% of new cases in 2022 resulted in deportation orders based on a criminal record. So we're saying that over 99% of the cases in 2022 were people who were not deported based on a criminal record. I mean, so talk about this narrative that, that ICE and CBP are supposedly protecting the U.S. from terrorism and, yeah. and crime and violence. Yeah, it's, uh, before I get into it, I just wanted to talk about the the, when we were talking about the uh, the kids that had to represent themselves in court. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I met some attorneys at, at the uh, ICE Processing Center that they just sit in the lobby and, and you know, I started talking to them, building with them. And I learned that 
in the US, uh, if you're detained and you're undocumented, you have the right to an attorney, but the government does not assign you one, as opposed to me as a citizen, if I get detained or if I get arrested for, for whatever it is, uh, I have the right to attorney and then I get assigned to a public defender by Kimiko or a private attorney. Uh, but for undocumented people, they don't, they're not assigned to one. So that's why a lot of them who are detained um, are stuck in limbo because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, their families are, are also undocumented and don't want to look into it because they're scared as well. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there as well. And into the case of, of protecting us from terrorism, um, you know, it, it's it's really, really infuriating to hear that people that are looking for work are considered terrorists. Uh, people who are escaping violence are considered terrorists. People who, who come here, and this country benefits greatly, greatly from undocumented workers, uh, which I mentioned earlier, they have a buying power of like over, I think it's like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 300 billion, I think it is around, because uh, they own over a million, a million point two homes, uh, not to mention how much they, they put into the tax bracket as well. Uh, and they do the work that, you know, most people really, really brutal work um, that most people probably don't want to even do, uh, whether it's farming, um, harvesting, uh, construction work, uh, you know, they contribute a lot to our society. They contribute a lot to to the things that, that we get to benefit from. Um, and to call them terrorists when our government is constantly bombing countries, uh, constantly destroying homes um, or across the world, uh, it, it, it really should be exposed because, um, you know, we're the real terrorists. The, US, the United States government is. Absolutely. Well said. I mean, the the stereotypes are so racist and and this is good because i wanted to talk about this other this other talking point that is used by you know right-wingers claiming that immigrants and refugees come to the u.s and they don't want to work and they just want to live on welfare even though i mean bill clinton destroyed welfare like the idea that the u.s has a substantial welfare state is absurd it was all dismantled yeah. but anyway the, the you you stress some really important points in your in your report about the the incredible hypocrisy of U.S. immigration policy toward uh, Ukrainians as opposed to people fleeing U.S. wars and coups and regime change. And you point out, you know, the the devastating impact of COVID on undocumented workers in the United States. But here, I mean, you have some incredible details that I think people really needed to start thinking about when, when we have this these discussions about immigration in the United States. So. There are around 10 million, 10.4 million undocumented immigrants in the United States, and 7 million of them are workers. That's that's 70%. Obviously, the rest are children, right? Mm -hmm. And 5 million of those seven, so around half of the undocumented workers in the United States worked in industries that were considered essential industries. They were essential workers during COVID. And if it weren't for many of these undocumented workers, I mean, the U.S. economy would have completely collapsed, especially during COVID. We're talking about people who work in agriculture, which, I mean, what industry is more important than agriculture? If you can't eat food, like, what the hell? I mean, and as you said, there's a lot of undocumented workers in these industries doing backbreaking labor that most people don't want to do. And how do they expect people to eat if if no one wants to do this agricultural work, I mean, I I don't know if you've seen. There's, I'm not on TikTok. I I, I just it's <laughs> it's too it's for young people. I don't like all yeah. the video based. I mean, we're we're in a video right now. I know, but like it's a very different kind of video. It's not like the the one minute sh low attention span. Anyway, whatever. But yeah, I don't know if you've seen. I saw on Twitter that people were would like share these videos of this TikTok account 
of there's like a TikTok account showing undocumented. Well, we don't even know if they're undocumented, but different workers working in horrible conditions in farms on the southern border. And there's like people cutting like lettuce and stuff. And they have to cut like 20 heads of lettuce in like one minute and they get paid. I mean, it's backbreaking labor. And it's so people are so ungrateful when it, when it comes to understanding uh, what what un, undocumented workers have to go through. So, so talk more about, you know, what the situation is like for undocumented workers. And you can also talk about what it's been like during COVID with essential workers. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because you and I met in uh, in Nicaragua and uh, I was there with the, the friends of the ATC delegation. Um, we got to go out to meet you know a lot of different farm workers and, and the uh, go into the, the field that they actually own, they produce and they have full control of you know what what kind of chemicals and make their own organic chemicals. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is because last year, the same year, um, I was part of a, of a fellowship here with USC and uh, I did a research and I did an article on it, which I can share with you. Um, my angle was, you know, the the effects of, um, or sorry, my angle was um, uh, in, indigenous women farm workers here in the Central Valley and what the healthcare, what, what are the barriers with, when it comes to healthcare? And I was out there in the fields with them and the conditions that they work in um, and how much they get paid. I mean, they get a sheet of about, I think it's like 14, 12 to 14 inches, uh, 12 by 14. Um, and if you fill it up with, with whether it's grapes or uh, strawberries or whatever it is that you're harvesting, uh, depending on what fields you're at, which are privately owned, um, they get between 25 cents to like 41 cents. And, you know, you might get lucky and find a place that will pay you 50 cents per sheet. Um, and this is like brutal work. And once we were there, I mean, there was like a snake hanging from one. I'm terrified of snakes. And I can only imagine like the, what other kind of stuff they have to deal with. Um, and not only that, the chemicals that they use um, not only affects them, but it affects their family too, because they go back home to their kids. They go back home to their, their parents. Um, so they bring that home. Um, and uh, sorry, let me get, gather my thoughts. So the lady, the people that I spoke to, you know, during COVID, um, they didn't have daycare. They didn't have their kids to put their kids somewhere. So they had to take them to work with them, which is illegal. And, you know, they would tell me their story. They would have to hide in the bushes somewhere or uh, under a car just so that the, the owner, the grower doesn't see them. Because if they do, then they're most likely going to get kicked out and then they'll lose a whole day's worth, a whole day's worth of work. Um, so I, I got to experience, you know, farming, agricultural work under a capitalist system here in California. And then also got to experience agricultural work under a socialist government in Nicaragua. Sorry, my dog. Nicaragua. Uh, <laughs> Um, where they own everything and they have access to everything and the government actually helps them and provides them with things. Um, so yeah, sorry, my dog is. So yeah, I got to experience both both sides of agricultural work um, from a capitalist system to a socialist system in, in Nicaragua. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's so important to talk about the, the differences because the idea that all farm work, all agriculture work has to be so brutal and exploitative is is nonsense. I mean, the the conditions that many of these migrant workers in the U.S. are forced into are just abominable. And and actually speaking of that, I mentioned the, the TikTok thing. I remember seeing this. This is an article back in 2020 
TikTok teens are exposing brutal conditions for migrant farm workers. And actually, I mean, this account is, I don't think they're teens. This is the United Farm Workers. But oh, yeah. here, I mean, you can see. So let me take the music down. The, all right. So you can see people who are watching as opposed to listening. Oh, man, I don't, I also can't figure out how Twit, uh, how uh, TikTok works. Oh, there we go. All right, here. I mean, this is just, it's backbreaking work. They get paid $1.86 per crate of 60 bundles. And for people who are just listening and not watching, I mean, it's just like, those are turnips, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't imagine doing work like this. And this is just one of these videos. There's so many videos of, here's another one. I mean, just like working in extremely hot weather and the, the, the amount, the number of, you know, uh, heads of lettuce and fruits and vegetables they have to pick in like an hour. It's just, I don't know. It's so crazy. And yeah, the and fact that, yeah, go ahead. No, I said, and, it, and it's, and it's um, not a planned economy. So it's just, you know, mass produce, mass produce, mass produce, mass produce. And a lot of the food, and unfortunately, we waste a lot of food too. So it doesn't even go into the homeless people or people that are hungry. Um, so, you know, you got to, you got to uh, talk about the both, uh, both experience that I had in, in Nicaragua and here, you know, like you said, it doesn't have to be this brutal. It doesn't have to be in, in this way. It can be a lot more uh, enjoyable for, for the workers. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and actually if people go to, uh, it's probably the only time I ever recommend TikTok. If people go to the United Farm Workers TikTok account, they just have so many videos like this. And I mean, What's sad is, I mean, for a lot of people who don't know about this, like these videos might seem really intense and brutal, but like for literally millions of workers, this is just daily life. And it, it always just, it just shocks me so much to see the dehumanization of immigrants and refugees in the United States, considering mm -hmm. how much the economy is really based on this backbreaking labor. And, and you have some other statistics in this, which again, which show which give lie to this racist idea that immigrants and refugees in the u.s are moochers or whatever you point out that 1.7 million of the undocumented immigrants in the united states work in the food supply chain i mean 1.7 million and you you point to studies that show that in 2016 a recent study found that undocumented workers paid $7 billion in sales taxes, $1.1 billion in income taxes, and $3.6 billion in property taxes. And then in addition, I mean, you have people paying tens of billions of dollars of rent and mortgages. So they found the study found that undocumented families are responsible together for around $315 billion in spending power. This is a huge part of the economy and for me it really shows how in the u.s model of capitalism it it fundamentally relies on the super exploitation of immigrant labor and that's one of the reasons i think why there's an emphasis on keeping undocumented workers without legal status because capital i mean you know there's this narrative that that uh you know that big capitalists want to encourage immigration right like the Koch brothers and and that's not entirely wrong, but at the same time, there's also a lot of capitalists who are exact who are opposed to immigration because they understand that when they keep immigrants 
undocumented immigrants in particular in this legal gray area, they don't have legal rights to defend them, which means that th these capitalists can exploit them and treat them as this kind of almost slave labor and they can steal their wages and force them to work in horrible conditions. So, I mean, for people, there is this weird, like, kind of like the, the so-called patriotic socialists who are just chauvinists who try to like, they try to like make this weird left-wing case against immigration, which is absurd. But in, in reality, a lot of capitalists like the, the system the way it is with 10 million undocumented workers who don't have legal rights because that is 10 million precarious workers they could exploit. Yeah, and California as a so-called progressive state, um, you know, I got to see farm workers organize a march against our governor when he vetoed um, allowing them to even unionize. Um, and it, it's it's a struggle that right now because I've been so I've been connected with with uh, some farm workers. You know, they're upset, they're infuriated. You know, they know they know how much money the state makes from from agriculture. Um, you know, the state alone is one of the I think. A fifth largest economy in the world and it's a state and a lot of it comes from agriculture uh, and the governor vetoed it because he himself owns a winery so he benefits from the labor of undocumented workers you know so that's you know as we say you know capitalism has a lot of uh, contradictions on it and that's one it's a, he, he's labels himself as a progressive governor uh, uh someone who's for the people and obviously he's not yeah i mean uh, the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party is is mind blowing, and yeah. I actually wanted to talk to you about, you know, the the weaponization of this narrative when Trump was in power. I mean, I was glad to see attention to the brutal U.S. immigration system, although of course we saw how cynical it was. Mm -hmm. But you know, when Trump was president, there was discussion on MSNBC and CNN regularly of how ICE and CBP were brutalizing immigrants and refugees. There was discussion of the horrible conditions on the southern border of these detention centers and family separation. And I'll get up some photos here of the crowded detention centers that there was for like three months. There was a tension in the United States and the mainstream media. And these photos, by the way, are from the, the DHS, from the Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General. So these are photos released by the U.S. government itself. And these are women and children in an overcrowded U.S. Border Patrol facility in Texas in 2019. And there's a lot of these brutal photos. I mean, just yeah. this, this is before COVID, but imagine with COVID, too. I mean, it's just like a death trap. There's so many of these brutal photos. And it was good to see that when Trump was in, in power, there was mass condemnation of this. We saw that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez visited the southern border and she was she did this photo op where she was crying but i mean where is all that condemnation and energy now because as you've pointed out in your reports not only is this continued under biden he is actually increasing the ice budget yeah and then also one thing that uh, that's not really talked about a lot is uh is deported veterans you know so we have all these people who are you know support the troops support the troops support the troops what about the ones that, that that served in war um i was actually with them a couple months ago on a project and and you know their office is right next to where a lot of uh, it's like under under uh, overpass so it's where a lot of the tents are at a lot of homeless people and a lot of people who, who are seeking asylum where they're waiting for for their case um and they have their office stationed right next to it 
Um, I got to speak to people who, who were sent to Grenada, people who, who were fighting in Vietnam, people who served in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, and the, you know, the, they get no love from the government at all. Uh, and one of the gentlemen, he, he talked to me about how, how the government, um, you know, as you're constantly asking, you know, you know, to, for your court case or you're fighting for your case, um, you get, they get ignored, uh, been there for decades, but, but when you die, that's a whole different story. They said they make, they, it's like a, a USA commercial. Um, they roll up with like a bunch of vehicles, um, put their body in a nice coffin, they get cremated, they get a nice flag, and then they, they take it to their family back in the States. Um, and they show up with, a, you know, you know, two or three cars and USA vehicles and the flag and, and they deliver it to their family, whether it's a mom, a dad, an uncle, a relative. Um, so they finally get to go back home after they're dead. Um, and, and that's just a, a brutal, brutal, brutal way to live and brutal, it's just a brutal system. Um, and, and no one's talking about it. No one's talking about them at all. Um, and that's something that I think uh, should be talked about a lot as well. Because where, where's the patriotism for, where's the patriotism for, for them? Right, if they actually sacrifice your life for uh, for our freedom and democracy by going to war. No, exactly. I mean, it's incredible seeing, especially the liberal hypocrisy of praising veterans after participating in these horrible imperialist wars, mentioning nothing of the criminality, the the killing of civilians, and all of this. And then when some of these immigrants, who I mean, in in a lot of cases, it makes sense why an undocumented immigrant would join the military because they think it would be a way to get legal status, right? Mm -hmm. There are many people who think that this is my way to get at least a green card, maybe citizenship. I can also, you know, get health care provided by the military because I'm not going to get anywhere else in the U.S. I can get education. And then after they, they're brutalized in these imperialist wars, they're just, they're tossed away. I mean, it, the yeah. cynicism is, is unbelievable. But let, let's talk about also... One of the important uh, facts that you stress in your report that you did, the first report you did at, at Multipolarista, is the role of U.S. imperialism in creating the majority of refugees around the world. This is another fact that is not emphasized nearly enough. These are official statistics from the United Nations showing the number of refugees recognized by the U.N. around the world. And what a coincidence when you look at the countries that represent the most refugees around the world. Number one is Syria with 6.7 million refugees. Again, these are official UN statistics. Number two is Venezuela with 4 million. Number three is Afghanistan with 2.6 million. And they point out that more than two thirds of all refugees and, and Venezuelans displaced abroad came from five countries. So Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar, all of these countries have been targeted by U.S. meddling or wars. Obviously, Syria, I mean, the U.S. since 2011 has been waging a brutal regime change war, spending billions of dollars funding and, and training and arming so-called moderate rebels linked to ISIS and Al-Qaeda to destabilize the country. In Venezuela, obviously, we know, you know the role of the U.S. in constant coup attempts and, and sanctions and an economic blockade. Afghanistan, you know, a 20-year brutal war in military occupation. South Sudan, more U.S. meddling leading to the partition of Sudan. And then Myanmar, where, you know, I've done coverage on the role of the U.S. in, 
in trying to push for regime change there and destabilizing the country. So, I mean, talk about the the idea that all these refugees, you know, they're just they're just you know hapless victims, and there's nothing to do with politics. No, I mean, these this is directly related to U.S. imperialism. Yeah, and the media spends so much time uh, bashing the the Syrian government, right? That they're you know uh, using chemical weapons on their on, on their own people, they're uh, gassing them, and uh, he's, he has to go. He has to go. Um, but where where is that attention on on the refugees, right? Where, why aren't we doing anything for them? Why isn't Joe Biden holding one of a Syrian baby or a Syrian child and saying that he feels the pain in their eyes like he did with the Ukrainians? Right? There's no sympathy for 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 refugees uh, escaping U.S. war because it would expose the U.S. role in in in, the, in that country, in whether it's Venezuela, Syria, Iraq. Um, it would expose that you know we're we're destroying them for to for world domination for imperialist wars, um, and you know, we got to call out the, the media for also not using these statistics to, you know, uh, 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 to talk about refugees, right? Um, so, yeah, that, it, it's just the hypocrisy of the, the Democratic Party and, and, and the media. Yeah, and, and another incredible example of this hypocrisy is that Biden pledged during his campaign that he was going to end private prisons and federal contracts. And, you know, this is just one of dozens of promises that that Biden blatantly broke. And here's an article at Grid. I don't really know what that is, but they had an interesting article, Grid News. A year after Biden's executive order on private prisons, business is still booming. And specifically, Geo Group, one of the largest private prison companies, talks about its strategy for getting around the executive order that was going to ban private prison contracts, federal contracts, and it, what's incredible is, you know, in some of these reports from kind of these like liberal outlets that are sympathetic to Biden, they they really bend over backwards to be like, well, Biden tried, but there's all these loopholes. And it's like, yeah, I mean, he's the president. If he wanted, he could close these loopholes like they act like the U.S. president has no power. I mean, it's it's absurd. You point out in, in most recent report and multipolarista that at the end of 2021, the Geo Group, this private prison corporation, signed a deal with Charlton County in Georgia to expand immigration centers from 780 beds to 3,018 beds. And this is located in the city of Folkestone, which has 4,000 residents. So this is a small town in Georgia with 4,000 residents, but it has it's going to have 3,000 beds. That is, it's going to have enough room for 3,000 immigrants in these private detention centers. And by, you point out that it's right down the road from another detention center in Lumpkin, Georgia, that has 1,900 beds. So talk about the expansion of these private for-profit immigration centers and what they're like. Yeah, GEO Group is, um, you know, they work hand-in-hand hand with the government. Uh, uh, in, in the late, I think it was uh, 2019, um, there was a hearing here that I went to go, uh, I went to go cover. Um, Starting in 2020, they were no longer allowed to expand in, in California. So what they did with this in, in cahoots with the with the government uh, at in December of 2019, they signed like an, a massive extension contract. Um, so then when they started building and started expanding um, in 2020, then people were all frustrated. Like, well, hold on, I thought, I thought you guys said you guys weren't allowed to expand. And it's like, oh yeah, 
on the last day we signed these long contracts. Um, so they're further expanding. Um, and I also mentioned in, in the report of uh, the ATD program too, that allows them to surveil and, and track people, um, well, even if they're not in a national detention. Um, so yeah, the, the, the private prison industrial complex, is, it's, it's not gonna uh, go away, unfortunately. Um, I hope it does, um, but it looks like they're gonna keep expanding and expanding. Yeah, talk a little bit more about ATD. I'll get up the section from your article. This stands for Alternative to Detention, which is an ICE program. And you point out that the 2022 spending bill includes a $10 million increase for ATD. And as of the end of 2021, there were 150,000 people being monitored by this program. What is it? The ATD program? Yeah. So once you get detained and once they have you on the system, um, even 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 in um, uh, sanctuary cities, when I spoke to an attorney, because uh, some of the cases that I worked on, um, when I spoke to ICE, uh, ICE doesn't do like the, the raids that we're familiar with from back then where they go into a neighborhood and, and, and they go into your house and door knock. Um, now what they do is they do targeted, uh, exactly how you broke it down to me, targeted attacks or targeted uh, uh, encounters um, so if, if if you get detained and in, in by a police officer and they, and they see that you're undocumented they put you into a database and, and this is actually told to me by an, uh, an ice official uh, ice has access to those to that database um, so what they do is if you know a certain amount of people let's say for example in, in south la are undocumented ice can ice can pick point exactly where they live because they have access to them and then they go into their house and then they detain them um, and then they instead of actually going into a private prison, um, then they're, 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 they're tracked by this program. Um, and so as you see in the report, there was about 100,000, and now with Biden, he keeps funneling, funneling people in there, and there's over 200,000 people detained or, or under the ATD program, um, so which is an, an extension of the uh, prison system. Um, and no one's talking about it, and, and it's kind of just going under the radar. Yeah, you, you stress in your article here, just looking at wh who is being targeted by this, this so-called alternative to detention ICE program. You point out that there are 200,000 people being monitored as of April 2022, and the largest number is in Harlington, Texas, and that it's 82% Latino, and the poverty rate is 29%, which is over double the national average of 13%. So... I mean, ICE is spending millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to spy on many largely poor and Latino people who are just trying to make ends meet and feed their families. And th this is just, I mean, this, we talk about the military industrial complex. This is also a kind of immigrant detention industrial complex and mass surveillance industrial complex that just keeps growing and growing. In 2018, the quota of ICE detention beds rose from 34,000 to 40,500, and ICE broke records the next year by detaining more than 55,000 people. And then you point out that the, 20, the Biden administration's 2022 spending bill maintains its payroll for more than 84,000 ICE employees and CBP employees. And of those 84,000 who work for ICE and CBP, 50,000 are border and interior enforcement officers. I mean, 
we're talking about a massive industry of people whose job is literally to brutalize immigrants and that that number keeps increasing yeah and then we're, we're uh, re 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 uh recently i've been seeing ads of uh, uh for people to to sign up and, and, and if you're looking for work if you're looking for a job um and it's it's um it's really jarring to see like you know Latinos and Latinas uh, promoting it, you know, and, it, and it's just like to diversify the border patrol. Uh, and it reminds me of that that commercial from the CIA, right? And the CIA was doing that too. It was like a year ago. Of like yeah. Diversify the CIA. I'm just like, man, y'all are really stretching. It's just like, how, like, I can't even imagine uh, what someone would think to, to, to sign up for, uh, for that job to, to patrol and terrorize uh, black and brown people. Yeah, well, so wrapping up here in the last few minutes, let's talk about resistance because mm -hmm. you you live in L.A., you've, you've done a lot of reporting on the ground, but you also have been involved in organizing against this barbaric system of systemic racism and dehumanization of people fleeing, you know, cause fleeing the problems caused by U.S. imperialism. So what what is the resistance like where on the ground where you are and across the country? Yeah, recently I've been working with some with, uh, farm workers. Uh, you know, they're really, really, really tired of, of how they're being treated. Um, the promises um, uh, that, that they've been told and or that it's going around. Uh, same thing with the uh, deported veterans. Um, they showed me a video. They combined a video of all the promises that Joe Biden made that he would do for deported veterans. And they are very, very, very hopeful because uh, some of these people have been there for decades. Uh, very, very hopeful that Biden would fulfill his promises and be able to um, grant them either asylum or come be able to come back to the country. Um, and they're frustrated. They're really, they're really getting ready. Like I would say, ditching the Democratic Party as a whole uh, because they're seeing that it's all nothing but a lie, and they're being used um, as a, you know, as a political ploy. Um, and the same thing with farm workers. Um, you know, they, they, they've been organizing marches. They've been organizing speakouts. Um, you know, obviously some of them are. are are a little bit more afraid because they don't want to get attention on them from, from uh, local law enforcement because these growers, people that own the farms, um, have a uh, you know they have them they have the sheriffs and ice on, on speed dial. So uh, it's very um, I would say uh, tricky to organize with them. Um, but yeah, they're, they're you know I would say that they're they're very aware of what's going on uh, and what they want, um, and you know it's just going to be a matter of time before they they, they take action. Yeah, and, and a question that I wanted to ask you about uh, because you, you're a great activist and, and journalist, and what's good is you do work both in the anti-imperialist movement and also with the immigrants' rights movement. And, and what I'm curious is what your thoughts are on how we can try to help merge those movements, right? Because unfortunately, I think there is often this kind of divide. There are people who are organizers and activists in the immigrants' rights movement, and then there are people who are involved in the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement, but usually they kind of have different politics, right? And they have different organizations and sometimes there's overlap, but maybe I'm wrong, but my impression is that there's not a lot of interchange. So what do you think that people can do to help try to merge those movements together? Because in my view, I mean, they're natural allies considering, <laughs> you know, who makes the refugees and immigrants? It's the imperialists. Yeah, yeah. I would say in, in the in the immigrant rights front, um, what is needed is solidarity, uh, because we have to understand that a lot of them are afraid to take the streets. 
So it has to be the people who are documented, including myself, you know, people who, who have, you know, citizenship to come out for them and to fight for them. Uh, and don't just leave it up to them to fight for, the, for their cause. Like, no, this is, this affects all of us because like you, like we talked about earlier, you know, without the work that they do, you know, we won't have food on our table, right? We won't have the clothes that we have, um, electricity. Uh, so we have to build solidarity with the immigrant rights movement for, with people who have papers, uh, people who, who, who have some kind of sense for humanity, um, and be able to build that solidarity with them and go on the streets with them. And I just leave it up to them because, you know, I'm sorry, they have more to lose than we do. Um, but yeah, I would say that. For sure. Well said. So wrapping up here, what what are some resources and organizations that you would recommend for people who want to kind of learn more about these issues and get involved? Yeah, I, I visit ACLU's website a lot. Um, there's also Freedom for Immigrants as well, um, it, which is part of ACLU. They do a lot of work uh, with immigrant rights. Um, it was actually through them that I was able to do ICE visits and talk to people inside the, inside the cells um, and, and talk to them and build with them and see what they need and, and how they can uh, get a sponsorship to be able to get out of uh, detention center. So I would visit those too. Great, thanks. And... Uh, so we're speaking with Abraham Marquez. He's a great journalist in California. And anyone who wants to check out his reports, you can go to multipolarista.com. And we just published an excellent report from him. Biden is expanding the U.S. government's brutal anti-immigrant machine. Find that at multipolarista.com. Um, Abraham, for people who want to follow your work and, and the stuff that you do in the future, how can they find you? Um, for my writing stuff and journalism stuff, I just mostly just use Twitter for that. So add Abe Marquez and the number three. Great. Yeah. For people watching, I'll get that up on the screen. Definitely go to at Abe Marquez three. Yeah. And thanks for joining. Uh, anything else you want to add before we conclude here? Uh, man, thanks for, for the invite. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was a great conversation. And for people who want to support the show, you can go to multipolarista.com slash support and you can find different you know, links in terms of you can join uh, at Patreon, you can join at Substack or donate. So, uh, Abre Marquez, thanks for joining and we'll, we'll keep in touch. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.